for coming out this morning. I'm excited to share about our windows, and this is proof of how brave Marion is in this service. For y'all who have been in Sunday school with me know that it is dangerous to wind me up and say go, so I hope y'all don't have any plans this afternoon. But so, so our windows and, and our history and our artifacts are kind of our themes over these, these next and last few weeks. And Marion just said it, you know, that we are a modern expression of an historic faith. And last week, she said that we honor our history to learn about our faith. And so we know that the past matters. We know that there's messages that come to us. One of my favorite quotes comes from Yaroslav Pelikan, who is a, a, a theologian in the 20th century, and he said that tradition is the living faith of those who have died, but traditionalism is the dead faith of those who are living. So we carry on that connection through the things that pass to us. And so this week, we're going to look around and talk about our windows and talk about these, these things that we have. Now, artifact, our, our theme, what is an artifact anyway? To me, when I think of an artifact, it's a thing. It's a thing, usually that carries us a meaning, carries a meaning to us, tells us something, right? And, and we have to sometimes look to see what that meaning is, to see what the story is, to see, is it the story directly right in front of our face in that object, or is it the story of how we still have that object? So let me give you an example. I have an old, old Bible that came from my great-great-grandparents, and it is by golly heavy, all right? This, this is an artifact that tells its own story. It's a Bible, right? It was given to my great-great-grandfather, Dr. Alonzo Dossi Wren in 1866, and the cover falls right off, and it's upside down. Because, see, you can't tell from the spine which way is up. But the inscription in it is amazing. It says it was presented by his parents as a precious gift, hoping that he may read it attentively and prayerfully, and that its pages may make him wise unto salvation, given to him the 6th of June, 1866, by George Washington Wren, his father. So Dr. Wren is on the far left of these pictures with his wife, Georgia Vickers. His dad and mom who were born in 1808 and 1813, respectively. George Washington Wren and Sarah Bridges are on the other side, and they hoped that he would read this attentively. Now, they weren't new to the faith themselves. I also have a Bible dictionary printed in 1842 that Dr. Wren's father, G.W. Wren, bought and used. And then when Dr. Wren left home to go to medical school, he gave it to him in 1867, hoping that he would continue in that study and in that faith and in that going beyond the surface. Why do you use a Bible dictionary? If you're going to go deeper, right? So there's a story with them as a thing. Maybe the story is the scripture. Maybe the story is the content of the Bible dictionary, but maybe the story is of how those are still here. And over 200 years later, that faith continues, hopefully going forward in the future, and how it got to them from those who went before them. And that's kind of where we stand right here 
with the windows around our chapel. So if we look around the chapel, we've got four windows, four main windows. Now, why are they here? They look pretty, right? You got to have decoration in the room. They fit in the space nicely. It's a good aesthetic. But there's more to it. Art in the church, and, and this is funny to me because here I am. I'm a tech guy. I'm about as, as analytical as they come. But I'm talking to you about the art because I like to go down into it. But this artwork has been used over the centuries to tell the story. So we see the story on the surface, and we'll talk about that. But then there's more story. We use windows in the church to tell the whole story of our faith. If you go over to the sanctuary, do this. Go over to the sanctuary. Go up into the balcony. And if you start on the north side, there are 24 windows that go around the sanctuary that start with Genesis and creation and the prophets and the patriarchs and the stories that you know from the Old Testament. David is there. And then you get to the nativity, Jesus as a boy, Jesus' baptism, the life of Jesus. And then as you come around to the front of the church, the four windows behind the choir are Holy Week. And then immediately to the, the side in the, the, the balcony again are the stories of, of the Ascension and Pentecost and Paul. So go take a look at those. But we also capture more than the scriptures. If you go and look at the windows at the balcony level where the covered walkway is, there's windows that portray John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and their mom because their mom was central to their faith. And then out the south entrance to the church, there are windows that capture what we here at Roswell Church view as some of our core values around service and engagement and looking after people, right? So the windows tell the story Often they do this through things like colors and symbols. So my wife is Catholic, and my wife went to Catholic school for like her whole schooling. And, and I had noticed going to Mass with her that Mary always wears blue. And I said, why does Mary wear blue? She says, I know, but I'm not telling you. you got to go find out on your own. Because she does that, right? So I did. And then what I found out was that in the early, early, early church, blue paint, before we had glass, essentially, to make windows, colored windows, blue paint was the most expensive. Blue paint was rare. And so by making Mary's garments blue, that was a sign of honor. And as we moved into the time of windows, that became a tradition and a message of honor for Mary in that. We see these things over time, and they make us ask these questions. They make us ask why is it this way? Why is it, what is the extra message that we're trying to get out of this? So as we look around our chapel, we see these four windows. There's a main window in each section with two on the sides with medallions that kind of support the message. The thing, a thing to remember is that this church wasn't the forever church here. There was a different church here before. And these windows came from that church, right? They came from the church before as a part of our history. Each one was donated by somebody. Another part of the story, like the Bible, is who are those people and how did they come here? And that's something that, that y'all ought to take a look in because you'll find lots of interesting history of our town with that. So let's look at each one. 
Over here, we're going to start with, with, with the one on the, the back corner. It's a picture of Jesus the Good Shepherd. Jesus looks very nice and peaceful. It's a peaceful scene. You know, he's, he's holding the lamb. The other sheep are looking on, very happy. And, and we're reminded immediately of the scripture in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is a passage that, that we've probably all heard. It's a passage for comfort. It's a passage for assurance. But it tells us about who Jesus is. Now, if we're going to double-click on that a little bit, do we hear it the same way that the people of Jesus' day heard it? Do we hang out with shepherds? Do we hang out with shepherds that do shepherding like they did 2,000 years ago? What would the people then have known about shepherds? They would have known a whole lot, right? They would have known a whole lot more about that. What are the kinds of things that the shepherd does? What are the kinds of people that become shepherds? What are the relationships between the shepherds and other people in the community? What extra do we see out of Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd? So if we see, the, the, we see this window, we immediately think of the scripture, and that's an awesome thing right off the start. But if we stop and we're quiet and we ask questions, we can hear a whole lot more about the story. Did folks in, in the Galilee invite shepherds over for dinner, right? What was it like sitting out on the hillside in, 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 the, in, the, in the summertime at night, as the shepherds and seeing all the stars, what do we know about that and how does it make us think of David, for example? What else does it tell us about who Jesus is? Now, one of the things about doing all of that is we naturally put ourselves into the scene, right? We place ourselves into this scene and we often put ourselves into the best part of the scene but it's useful to say, who do I see myself as in this scene? Am I the lamb sitting peacefully in Jesus' arms? Am I the sheep watching as Jesus is comforting another sheep? Or am I somebody standing out watching this whole scene and not really interested? Where do I put myself? And what does that say about us and about the scene? One of my favorite things about this window is, and you can see this today, that window is where the sun comes. Our church faces just south of east. So when we're here in the morning, the sun comes through that window, reminding us in a big way. Now, am I saying that, that you know, the architects of Chapel Roswell decided to do something like the ancient Egyptians or the Stonehenge people? No, not at all. It's our street happens to face that way, right? You'll notice that the Presbyterians don't face east. They face west because they go across the street from us. But it's a cool, cool thing that helps us to see more. But if we look over here, and in the sunshine coming in that side, it's harder to see these. This window is also a lot like that one. Jesus is holding a sheep. Jesus looks rumpled. His cloak has fallen off his shoulders, Right? It looks like there's been a lot of going on. The sheep's got his legs up like this, like he's wiggly, you know. What's going on? Maybe that sheep ran off. 
Maybe he ran off, got tangled up, got lost. And Jesus had to go find him and had to crawl around on the ground, get up under the bush and pull that sheep out, pull that lamb out. Luke tells us about this. Jesus tells a parable in Luke where he says, so he told them a parable. Which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he laid it on his shoulders and rejoices. And this is one of the, the parables that Jesus tells to tell us about himself, right? Who Jesus is, that Jesus is going to come looking for us, even if we're the one out of 100, or whether the one that got misplaced out of 10, or the one that got misplaced out of two. Because the other thing about reminding us about the Scripture that comes from the study in Scripture, and this is why I'm such a big advocate of Bible study, is that you, you see this and it reminds you of the rest of this conversation that went on. So by seeing Jesus, it looks like he's rescued that sheep. We see even more. And so what lesson do we see out of this one that's different than this one? Who do we see ourselves in in this case? Are we a wiggly sheep? Or are we a sheep who sits comfortably in Jesus' arms? Do we try to fight for what we want to do? And Jesus has to come looking for us? Or are we resting comfortably, right? Or are we those sheep sitting in the background? This one on the, on the right has a look about her that's like, what is with that lamb, you know? So, so we have to think about. Now, why do we have two that are pretty much exactly the same? I got no idea. I got no idea. Maybe the folks who gave them, whose names are on the bottom, liked them. I have not been able to find enough pictures of the old church to see. Maybe they stood facing each other and were part of an emphasis of that message. My guess is it's the people who gave them liked them, and they picked what they wanted to give because this is the story that they wanted to share, right? But they are telling different stories. They really do. So one of the things that I've kind of talked about so far is putting yourself into that picture, and thinking about where do you fit in this picture. Sitting quietly, Marion talks about the quiet and inserting ourselves and opening ourselves to what God is saying to us. This is a great thing to do. And when you look at these, you, you think about what are the things you hear as you're on this hillside? Do you hear the rest of the sheep? What do you smell? Well, I'm not going to go there, right? <laughs> what do you taste? What do you, what, do you, what do you touch? What are those senses that you get in this scene, right? Who are the other characters that are maybe off, off camera, and how are they reacting? This might sound familiar to you if you've ever done a disciple Bible study. In Disciple, there's an exercise in almost every week where you take a passage of Scripture and you go deep into it. And it asks you to identify what are the tastes, the touches, the sights, the sounds that you're experiencing. And that being quiet and listening and trying to imagine yourself in the scene while it's a part of Disciple is, again, not a new thing. There's an Irish 
philosopher and theologian named Padre Gotuma, who leads workshops in this, and he calls it Ignatian. After a practice from St. Ignatius, who was a Jesuit centuries ago, and you go back even further, and it's been a part of how do we hear the Scripture to place ourselves in it. Now, I mentioned that colors can play a role in, in the message and how we understand the message. Remember Mary, Mary in blue. And, and you see in both of these windows that Jesus is wearing a red robe with a white cloak. That's kind of unusual. If you go over to the sanctuary and you go around all of the windows there and you see most pictures of Jesus, he's wearing a white cloak with a red I mean, a white robe with a red cloak. This is that same picture from the sanctuary. White robe, red cloak. More interestingly, if you go to the sanctuary and go through the story of the Bible, all the windows around the balcony, you see Jesus as a boy in the temple wearing a white robe. You see Jesus at his baptism wearing a white robe with a dove coming down. And in every picture after that, he's in a white robe with a red cloak. The red is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The red cloak is a symbol of the Spirit coming on Jesus at his baptism. And we see that as part of the story in the balcony. So we see Jesus almost always with a white robe and a red cloak. Now, do we then say that everybody who has red or who has white has these things? Why is he in white? White is sinlessness and perfection, right? That's the kind of things we associate with it. But you look around in the rest of the pictures, and there's lots of people in white robes. Well, because a lot of people wore plain white robes because you don't have to dye them and stuff. But that doesn't mean that they're not choosing that for Jesus for that purpose, to identify Jesus and to identify those qualities. And red doesn't always mean the spirit, but when they want to highlight that about Jesus, especially when we see Jesus without and with, that's part of the progression of the story. But we always see Jesus now with the red cloak. And that's an important thing to notice as we, as we, we look at pictures of him. We also see in the sanctuary that in the front... The Holy Week windows, the picture of Jesus at the tomb where the women come looking for Jesus, he's in a white robe and a gold cloak. Remember they didn't recognize him? He's somehow different, somehow heavenly, somehow different, but he's still Jesus. That's what that gold cloak shows us is that, that he's, he's in that liminal space that he's somehow different than he was, but he's still Jesus, right? So I mentioned early on that these, these windows came from the previous church here. That church was started in 1921. All of the planning for that church went on in the year or so before that. What was going on in this country in 1919, 1920, 1921 that would sound familiar to us? It's called the Spanish flu, the pandemic, where everybody was locked down hard. 
and where people argued about should you or shouldn't you wear masks, right? And all of those sorts of things. And where they stayed away and didn't want to be with each other. So it was a huge step of faith to realize we were really crowded before this started and we needed space and we're going to need more space. So they started this building in 1921. But then in 1969, it burned. It burned. And I've got a short video from Bill Floyd, who was pastor then, to talk about that fire. My name is Bill Floyd. I'm pastor emeritus of, of Robsville United Methodist Church. I was a senior minister when I was appointed here in June of 1966. But what I'm here to discuss with you for a few moments is what happened in August of 1969. Late that night, which was early in the morning, this sanctuary uh, was engulfed with flames. This steeple, if you were anywhere near, you saw smoke coming out of it and you would think it was a factory in uh, full blast. And as you stood and watched it, you were quite sure that nothing was spared. When it was over, there was just charcoal lying around smoldering. But there was one big exception. There are 12 stained glass windows that was in that sanctuary. In all of this destruction, not a single one of them was singed or burned or hurt in any manner. God saved these windows. So that's one of the amazing stories, too. We think about how do we still have these artifacts that carry the message from the people who went before us? And we think about what they went through and, and the, the tragedy they had of, of losing their church. And then if you've ever gone through a church fire, you're just not sure. Do I have a church anymore or a church that's been hit by a tornado? What do I do next, right? But they picked up and they rebuilt. And they rebuilt this space, right? And we remember them and what went, for, what went before in these windows. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Our, our history here, not just our history as the church. So let's look over at this one. This is a picture of Jesus knocking. Notice white robe red cloak. He's knocking at the door. This is another favorite, favorite window, right? You could, you could kind of get all these out of a catalog in the 1920s. There's standard pictures, right? And because you go to churches of that time, and a lot of them are very, very similar, but that's good because they're common messages that we want to share. Jesus knocking. What does that remind us of? Revelations 3 says, listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and eat with you and you with me. And this is a story that goes along with no matter what's going on, Jesus continually comes to us and invites us into fellowship, invites us into his kingdom over and over and over and over. And it's up to us to open the door. It's up to us to let Jesus in. Jesus can't come barging in. A little funny thing, if you go and look at this window in the sanctuary, there's a slight difference. So in this window, Jesus could come barging in. There's a doorknob. 
in the sanctuary, there's not a doorknob, right? But that's the message here is that Jesus knocks, Jesus knocks, and only we can open the door. And that's important. And that makes us think about how do we understand our relationship with coming to know Jesus and what part is invitation and what part is response and that we need to respond. The last window back here is my very favorite. This one is the climax of the story as we go around the chapel. And I think it pulls together a lot of the things we've talked about. There's an angel sitting on a rock. We can tell he's an angel because he has that gold robe of being a heavenly being. The wings kind of give it away a little bit too. But he's an angel. And what's he doing? He's pointing up and he's holding lilies. So symbols in the midst of these windows are another key thing. The lilies, which we see here and here and here and here and here, not on that one, are a symbol of resurrection. He's holding lilies. He's telling us Jesus has risen. Moreover, Jesus has ascended. What's sitting next to him on the rock? Looks to me like a red cloak. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said in John, I have said to these things to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you what I've said to you. Jesus promised us the Spirit would continue to be with us. The Spirit would educate us. The Spirit would guide us. Right? Think about Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit through those people assembled in that, that room. This is that message of this, of this window. It sums it all up, right? So it's very cool to see these windows and to know how they got here and to know that it, they've gotten here through people who have come before us. But what do they tell us? They tell us Jesus is the good shepherd. We know that. We know that when we run off and go astray, Jesus is going to come looking for us. Even when we run away, Jesus is going to go to great lengths to find us. Jesus is going to keep knocking on the door, pursuing us and pursuing us and pursuing us. And in the end, we're reassured of that mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And the angel tells us that, that Jesus has risen and has left the spirit with us so we like John Wesley can feel our heart strangely warmed and that we can go out and serve bravely. So after Jesus rose, his disciples in a couple of cases ran into two men who basically said, what are y'all looking for him here for? He told you what to do, now go do it, right? And I think that's as we go around here, the big message. We're given the assurance We've been told what to do. It's now time for us to go forth and serve the Lord. Or like my great-great-grandparents, three great-grandparents said that we've been given these windows so that we can read them attentively and prayerfully and become wise unto salvation so that we too can be active people in the kingdom. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do thank you so much for bringing us all together this morning. We thank you for the faith of those who've gone before us. We thank you for the ways that... They shared their faith 
with each other then and shared their faith with us as we continue to learn from them and we continue to share that faith with those who come after us. Help us to put that faith into action. Help us to be active in worship, active in outreach, and active in our community and to be passionate disciples. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.